Welcome to the Creek Default Podcast, where we discuss the latest news, laws, and trends affecting your industry. Welcome back to the Creek Devault Podcast. I'm your host, George Lepinotis. I'm joined today by my good friend and uh, the leader of my own practice group, Brian Heaton. Brian, thank you for being with us. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me, George. Uh, Brian, you are a veteran at the podcast format, so uh, you know I'm excited about this. We're gonna we're gonna knock this one out of the park. Does one time make me a veteran? That does. It does. Okay, in, okay. in the Creek yeah. Devault podcast world, it one does. time is a veteran. Perfect. So um, today's topic is actually a very interesting topic when we're looking at mergers and acquisitions and uh, business deals, corporate type deals. And that is uh, one where uh, you add the complexity of multiple owners and multiple sellers or stakeholders on the seller's side and, and what that does to a transaction. Let's just from a high point view, though, start with when we're selling a business, oftentimes we're looking at one of two different formats, either an equity purchase or an asset purchase. But in today's world, largely it's a sale of the whole business, right? Yep, absolutely. We, you know, a lot of times you can bring in an investor uh, for capital, and that may be a not an entire transaction for where the whole company moves. But an asset or equity deal is usually the whole thing, whole thing transitioning. Yep. And so, um, looking at, let's just assume it's an equity purchase, and the seller has a number of members or shareholders, depending on its structure, whether it's a corporation or a limited liability company or even a partnership. Um, those different people might have different interests. Let's go over the landscape of different ownership. I'll call it types, right? I mean, we all think of a company owned by a person. We all think Microsoft is owned by Bill Gates. But the reality is that even when it was a closely held company, Microsoft had a number of members or shareholders that all needed to be accounted for. Uh, In most closely held companies, there's more than one one owner. Absolutely. And and sometimes you can even collapse that where you say, well, maybe there's five owners, but it's a husband and a wife and then there are three kids. And, you know, unless Thanksgiving dinner gets a little awkward, everyone's going to vote the same way and everyone's going to be on the same page uh, where we run into, you know, the, the term closely held business can be a lot of different things. It can truly be one individual owning it, but it could be you know, 50 different individuals owning it. And so what when I think, you know, the, the idea here is kind of trying to key up, create considerations behind having uh, a, a plan in place for when you have people of different, not of the same family, not, not thinking the same way, different age demographics, different stages in their careers, where some people may be closer to retirement, some people may not, some people may be more entrepreneurial, and some people may not. Um, every, all those different things kind of play a role in terms of identifying whether you have different groups uh, that, that may have a lot of different takes on what the transaction is going to look like. And so let's identify those. We've got the, obviously, the entrepreneur. We could have a founder who yep. may own a big block of stock. But if the company is mature enough, you also could have uh, directors or executives who have been given as part of their compensation package or have purchased as part of their 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 compensation agreements an interest in the company. Right. And uh, so they're not sitting around the same Thanksgiving table. Right. As we look at their roles, what is it? Do you find that universally there's a difference in goals amongst these people? Absolutely. I think you can, 
you know, again, kind of some of the things I mentioned, how close someone is to retirement. Someone's a lot closer to retirement. They're more interested in, in getting that bite of, of let's sell, get the cash, and have that certainty. Other people may be willing to take more of a flyer on future growth in, in the business, or if there's an opportunity to reinvest those funds and in rolling over into equity into the buyer, that might be appealing for someone who's in management and is going to stay on. The, the non-compete terms for the deal, someone who's retiring and is close to that, who's going to take this as a, as a financial windfall and not, not work any longer, they don't care what the non-compete says, but someone who's 35 and they only own 2% of the company, so they're not getting as much upside financially, but then they're going to have to sign on for a really oppressive non-compete that you may see through a transaction. That's going to create some concern. So you know, sometimes you have a buy-sell agreement in place or a shareholder's agreement in place that says who can kind of be in charge. But in a lot of cases, we'll run into clients where that's not the situation. And so um, we're really trying to negotiate two deals, the deals with the buyer and the deal within ourselves. So it's kind of a, a deal within a deal and you're almost negotiating two separate transactions. Yeah. And as we think about the, the closely held company um, and we're thinking about those roles, now we're going to get off into kind of some of the legal thoughts and, 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 and that process. Is there a way that you can set up the transaction from the start as the attorney, as the advisor, where you can avoid some of the pitfalls or front some of the disagreements? Yep, I think it just really goes down to process and communication are really the, the key you know terms that I would put all the rest of what I'm going to say in. I mean, I think you need to upfront have an idea of how you're going to get from point A with considering a transaction to point B where you make the deal happen. Early on, you know, I think doing homework among the different ownership groups or different constituents to say, what, what is your, you know, what are your hot button issues? Where do you have concerns? Um, we've used confidential surveys before because sometimes those discussions are awkward and they don't want necessarily everyone to know where they come from. So we can step in and say, we can do a confidential survey. We can, you can send us specific concerns you have by email that won't be shared. Everyone's got to be on board with that process that, that, you know, we will be kind of a, a separate you know, uh, cons- consolidate all that feedback in one place. Uh, but then that allows us to early on identify what pitfalls are we going to have along the way in the transaction. You don't, last thing you want to do is find out you never really had a deal in the first place because you signed up for an LOI that half the people would never have voted for in the first place. Yeah. So that, that really initial homework that you do, um, and then it doesn't stop there. You have to have good communication as you go. Um, and we could talk about that if you like. But I think that really initially understanding who are the different players, what voting level do you need to get to, and how are you going to get to that vote? Um, what do you have to piece together in terms of prioritizing different aspects of what people care about? Well, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, and, and this, this branch is just a little bit off topic, but really is a consideration that I believe really cuts to the core of what you're saying. And that is the obligation or the duty that a majority shareholder may have to their minority brethren. Um as we look at that process, and you had touched on something that in my practice has been very valuable, and that is that value of early and often communication. Yep. Um, does, it, does it help when that primary shareholder who might have his or her own motivations for negotiating a sale, does it help when that person goes to their other shareholders sooner rather than later to discuss the, the details of an LOI? Maybe not detail by detail, but at least broad strokes? Yeah, I think it, you know, the classic lawyer answer, it depends, right? And so <laughs> if if the majority owner has the ability to make the decision by themselves because they have a buy-sell agreement in place or based on the voting thresholds, they know that they're going to ultimately control control the situation. 
um, I think that you know we would still advise them to have some good conversations with your partners about what they see because you're ultimately going to drive the most value for the company by having everyone on board. A buyer will get spooked really quickly if all of a sudden people that they expected to be on board with the deal are not. So you're gonna that's gonna be, even if you have the power, you still want to get involved uh, and have those conversations on the front end. There's also a fine line there where you don't want to have too many people with the pen and too many cooks in the kitchen when you're negotiating these documents. And so if you have a a 2% owner of the company, the last thing you want is for that person to come in and start really driving process. And at some point, you kind of have to call it. And it's an art more than a science to say, okay, we've we've gathered feedback, but we're going to control the drafts and the terms of the deal ultimately within a smaller group of people. And maybe that's just the majority owner. Um, When we have clients that maybe have... 30, 40, 50 owners, but they have a board of seven, the board should be driving that process. You don't want all 40, 50 owners driving the process. You want to have, there's a board for a reason and they're the ones who make that happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's very fair. I was actually, as you were talking, I was thinking recently to a recent transaction that I closed where there were in fact about 40 different stakeholders, uh, shareholders, members actually of a limited liability company. And all 40 of them owned approximately the same percentage. Right. And so it was managed by a board, uh, an elected board, but the board was very um, uh, wise in going to the shareholders before even necessarily negotiating with all potential suitors um, on substantially all of the assets of that business. And what they did was they got approval at a very high level. Would you all agree to A, B, and C? Yeah, of course, Knowing that later there's going to be a lot of filling, you know, there's going to be 8.1, 8.2. Right. Um, does that work in your practice? It can. I, I actually do a lot of work in the physician space. And so uh, when we're dealing with medical practices that are owned by, you know, a number of physicians, um, you'll see that as well. And, and that goes back to what we talked about, the different types of people. A new doc who's just a couple years out versus someone who's within a few years of retirement can be very different. And so I think you're right that you it's almost a funnel, right? You start at kind of the broad strokes, and then as you go, you kind of narrow it down. And that's why it's important to have good communication, regular meetings to check in, and you're only going to kind of give, uh, you give a little more information as you go to try and get, people are going to ultimately have to get comfortable with all of those sub points, but you're just trying to give them enough information at the time. And and really that is also can be a challenge on our side uh, as we're trying to run a negotiation process. You know, it's communicating to the owners. We care about your feedback. We want to give you some time to look at this, but we also have, they've not been at the seat at the table to negotiate every aspect of the deal yeah. and understand that because a certain provision is the way it is, that's probably because we had to give up a couple of other provisions and that's they right. haven't been at the table. So yeah. it, again, it goes back to communication, having a board who's on board with getting people the information they need when they can. When you send out documents to people, you know, a lot of times when you get documents out to the owners, I'm telling them, I want you to look at this and let me know if you have questions or concerns. If you feel like you need to get your own counsel to look at them, that's a great idea. You should do that. But also letting them know, I'm not going to be taking feedback from your from your counsel. Uh, because again, that counsel may have ideas uh, about what, how things should have been done, but without them having a seat at the table, it's really hard for them to come in and, and Monday morning quarterback it. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, actually, when and you kind of hit on it. So, you know, each of these shareholders, each of these members, each of these owners are entitled to their own counsel, yep. but they're not necessarily entitled to a voice in the process. Yeah, their, their voice is ultimately their vote, thumbs up or thumbs down for the transaction. Sure. So, yeah. yeah, we're always working on that. And I think that goes back to, you mentioned the majority owner 
earlier, I think it's very important, and this is maybe more professional responsibility for lawyers, but it's also good for clients to understand the distinction that we can only represent one one party here. So do we represent the company or do we represent the individual? Yeah. And so when you have the majority owner who says, hey, I, I want to... I want to do this provision because this is going to impact all these other owners and we represent the company, we would say, well, that's, we represent the company. That's, that's different than what you just said. And so it's, it's really important for, you know, if you're, if you're a lawyer listening to this to make sure you're upholding that professional responsibility. But if you're, if you're a business person representing that, you know, listening to this, you want to know who your lawyer is representing and there's those lines should not get blurred because um, we have to make sure that we know who we're taking care of at the right time. And, and really in most things you're, you're taking care of the entire process. So it benefits everyone. Right. Um, but there are times when that can diverge because different people have a different employment agreement after the deal happens yeah. and different people have a different um, right. payment payment approach. Well, this has been uh, interesting, you know, the deal within the deal and uh, what it takes to sometimes get consensus amongst a group of sellers. I thought the medical space, I think, was uh, is, is very important, especially you get a, a group of sophisticated professionals that you can often have. With lots opinions, of opinions. With lots of opinions. <laughs> lots of yeah, opinions. yeah. But, uh, you know, I mean, oftentimes, as I've said to my clients, you've said to yours, I'm sure, opinions are endless. Uh, deals are not. Right. And so uh, it is important at some point to simply streamline the process. So um, thank you, Brian. Thanks for uh, being here. I know your time is uh, very valuable. So uh, thanks for taking out the time to talk with me and our listeners. Uh, thanks to you, the listener, for listening. If you'd like to know more about uh, our business acquisitions and securities practice, including Brian Heaton and myself, who are both members of that practice group, uh, feel free to visit our website, Uh And thank you for being here today. My pleasure. Thanks, George. <laughs>